idea that we're going to explore today is a little bit more, I won't say mellow, I'll just say it's a little bit more down in terms of the mood. And so, wherever you are right now, I just want you to say to yourself, maybe out loud, maybe kind of just, maybe you want to say it to your neighbor, that's fine too, just say, it's okay to be a little bit mellow right now. Go ahead, tell yourself. That was a little too happy. Some of you are like, it's okay to be a little metal right now, okay? Like you're the guy from the B-52 singing Love Shack. Um, here's just maybe a little more somber like this. Hey, it's okay to be a little bit mellow right now. Okay, that was better. That was a coffee shop thing. Listen, hey man, you may not know this, but in the Christian life, sometimes it's a time to be happy, and sometimes it's a time to be sad, and sometimes it's a time to be confused. And that's what we're going to talk about today is what happens, what do you do when you're just a little bit confused? And the the way we're going to kind of explore it uh, is just to ask this question, what do you do uh, when you're in the valley? You guys know what I mean by being in the valley? Uh, You've been on some spiritual high, something that's really amazing and impressive, and you've now come down off of that high, off of that high place there spiritually, and it's not that... It's not that you're, you've gone inverse below the water. You're just in a valley between these two high points. And you know probably another high point's on its way, but you're just kind of somewhere stuck in between. Maybe for you, that's been where you, uh, you go to like summer camp. Maybe if you went to student camp and all that stuff, or maybe you go to like one of our retreats or something. You're at kind of a retreat moment where you're in a fake Christian bubble. You guys know what I'm talking about. Every time Christians go to camp, they go to like some secret Wakanda type place, Right. It's like Christian Wakanda, and they're in a fake bubble, and everything's perfect, and all the camp food is perfect, and all the worship songs are perfect, and all the friendships are perfect, and sin is never there. And then you get on the bus, and as you progressively drive back home, everything gets more and more mellow, and then you're uh, two weeks out from that experience, and you're just like, wow, I miss camp, right? And you're just kind of in a valley spiritually. You're like, man, what do I do? Or maybe you're someone who you started a life group. And you're leading it, and it's incredible. And you know the first couple of weeks of a life group where everyone's coming together, and you're clicking, and you're connecting, and you're like, I love these people. They're going to be in my wedding, right? Like, I'm, I'm so down. I'm ride or die with this crew. And then you get to, like, week seven or eight, and it's just kind of normal at this point. And you're like, am I doing something wrong? Like, this is just, we're so mellow here. You show up, you're like, how's everybody? And you go around the room, and they're like, fine. How about you? Fine. How about you? Fine. And then everyone leaves and you start crying. You're like, did I do something wrong? Have we lost the spiritual zeal of our life group? And you're just somewhere in the spiritual valley. Or maybe you got that first big boy, big girl job or the promotion or the deal. You've been praying about it. You've been reading your Bible. God delivers. He delivers you into a new job and you love it the first couple of weeks. And you're doing such a good job that they add more responsibilities to your plate. You know what I'm talking about? And you're like, oh, I didn't sign up for this. Are you paying me more? No. Okay. Cool, 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 cool. And now you don't know if you really like your job anymore and you're on a high, but now you're in the valley. And what do you do? Or maybe you're someone uh, who goes on the dates and you think this is the one and everything's going great, but then you go on that one date and he's like, whatever. And you're like, I don't know if I like that. And now you're stuck. You're like, do I move forward? I don't know. I'm in this valley. I don't know what I'm doing. And when you get to the valley, you typically have one of four different reactions, okay? Just every human being has one of four uh, typical kinds of reactions. Number one, uh, maybe you're just kind of blah. You're just like, ah, uh, I'm just, ah, I don't, uh, you're not happy, you're not sad, you're just, uh, and you're like, what do I do? Is this wrong? Is this right? You're looking through the Bible for the word blah, you don't find it, you're just like, I don't know. Some of you, you get super depressed, right? Some of us, we get there and we're just like, Man, this is, I don't know, man. I'm just like, oh. you're just like really listening to Radiohead. You're just like, man, I just, I don't know, man. I'm super depressed. I just discovered my generation because I said Radiohead and no one went, mm, right? Yeah, I'm old. So we'll just go ahead and establish that. I'm feeling depressed now. I was on this high from starting the message and then I did the Radiohead uh, joke illustration and no one got it and now I'm feeling old and depressed. For some of you, there we go. For some of you, you're just bored, right? You're high stimulation kind of people. And when you're at camp or when you're at a deal, you're like, everything's firing. And then you get home and it's in the doldrums of the day-to-day grind and you're just understimulated and you're just like, bored, right? Or maybe you're angry. 
Because you really loved being with God on the mountaintop, and now you're in the valley, and you're just like, why, God, did you take me here? I don't want to be here. I was thinking about this in my own life. Um, the last time I really can remember being in such a great kind of mountaintop valley experience, it was 2016. You guys remember 2016? Just a few years ago? Yes, great year. Great year. Except for the fact that um, I was in a weird spot. Uh, Isaac and I were, were working at a church in Texas, and I exited that job church situation in not a great way. Uh, and I was kind of working on things here about coming here, but I was somewhere in between that job and this job. And I was, I can just remember being in my living room in a valley spiritually. I was depressed and I was angry. And then I was rooting for the Golden State Warriors to beat the Cavaliers in the NBA Finals, and they lost in Game 7. And I was just like, that is the last straw, Jesus, right? I was so just dejected in life, and I didn't know what I was going to do. And I'm telling you, I was just disoriented. I was blah. I was angry. I was depressed. And have you ever been there? What do you do? What do we do? When we're in a spiritual valley. Well, this is the question that Elijah faces in the Old Testament. So if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to open up, uh, if you can, if you have Bibles, uh, to 1 Kings chapter 19. We're going to look at the first 18 verses there. 1 Kings 19. If you don't have it, that's cool. It'll be on the screen here. And just to recap where we've been, we're in a summer-long series called Storyline. And we're looking at the high points of Scripture, just the the narrative of the Bible. And here's where we've been. God creates everything in six days, and then he rests on the seventh day. And he creates Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve forget that their role is to be the supporting character in the story of their lives. God's role is to be the hero. And they try to become the hero of their story. And that's when everything gets all wampus, uh, cattywampus and out of control and The fall happens, and now there's sin entering the world, and all this stuff happens, and it's really bad. Uh, But God, you know, protects them and takes care of them. They have kids, Cain and Abel. That doesn't go so well, right? One of them kills the other and then tries to hide the situation, and that doesn't go well. Uh, God gives Adam and Eve more kids. Somehow those kids turn into a nation of people. I don't want to get into the inbreeding situation there or whatever went on, but it was just kind of, it's curious, right? Um, But it comes to a point where there's a lot of human beings, and they're living in the world, and these human beings get this idea. They're like, we're going to build a tower, and they build a tower to Babel, and God confuses their languages and scatters them all over the world. And then in that point, he finds Abram and calls him out of his place and says, I'm going to make you the patriarch over this people group called Israel, these Hebrew people who are going to be my people, calls them into relationship with himself. Abraham has uh, a kid, and then he has a grandkid, and that grandkid uh, has like... 13 kids. One of them is Joseph, who has an amazing Technicolor dream coat. If you've seen the musical, it's really fantastic. But these, the, uh, you know, Jacob and his sons and the 13, they make their way from where they are into Egypt and they kind of arrive there and they're like, this is finally going to be our place. No, it's not. Because Pharaoh comes in and he oppresses all of these Egypt or all of these Hebrews, makes them slaves in the land, and God raises up Moses to come and lead those people out of Egypt into the wilderness, through the Red Sea, right? Into the wilderness for 40 years. Remember, we learned this last week. Moses was supposed to speak to the rock to get water. He's like, God, I know what I'm doing. I'm a grown man. He hits the rock twice, water comes out, and he's like, ha, I bring water. And God goes, Yeah, but you're not listening to me. You've become arrogant. Um, you've forgotten that your role now is not your role always, and so now I'm going to transition you out of that role. Moses hands off the leadership of the people of God to Joshua, who takes them through Jericho into the promised land. And in between last week and this week, here's what happens, right? Joshua takes these people. He moves into Israel, the promised land, which if you remember in the state of Florida is like somewhere between Daytona Beach and Naples, Florida, with Orlando being Jerusalem, the beautiful city, right? Uh, And so they move in, and this is a very interesting situation that happens. It's the first subdivisions that happen in all the world. Each uh, of the tribes, the 12, actually 13 sons, gets their own parcel of land, and it becomes like Judah and Levi, and not Levi because he's a priest, but, you know, all the other uh, 13 kind of brothers situation, they get their own plot of land, and it's the first subdivision, okay? There are HOA fees involved. Uh, There's like a whole lawnmower business that gets started. It's crazy. Uh, But that happens in Israel, and the people are there, and after a while, all these tribes of people, they're like, you know, 
man, like, we don't really have anything unified. We really want kings. We want a political system. And God goes, no, you don't. I'm your king. I'm your God. Just follow me. So God raises up judges, which are basically like these ad hoc rulers who rule over all these people. And some are good. Some are bad. Samson, right? And uh, that just goes haywire. And finally, the people go, listen, what we really want are kings. And so God decides to raise up some kings. And he raises up Saul. And Saul is an okay king, but he's got a temper problem, right? And he's bad and goes away. And then God raises up David. And David is a little boy. He defeats Goliath. Everyone's like, cool, David's awesome, man. He's like UCF in football. He beats everybody. <laughs> Shout out, charge on. We got you, got you knights. I got you knights. I got you knights. Sorry. Everyone in here who's not a knights fan is like, what, Doug? What's going on here? Uh, anyway, I don't want to get into that right now, but bottom line is David beats Goliath. He becomes king. He's basically a really good king, except he sleeps with Bathsheba and has her husband killed in a really nefarious way. And so there's some really weird stuff that happens. David ends up marrying her along with a couple of other wives, plural marriage. And um, then uh, his son Solomon takes over, and it's the most expansive growth of the kingdom. And Solomon is really wise, but he also has like a million wives and a million kids and it's just really bananas. Uh, but Solomon is the last kind of unified king. And then after Solomon dies, the kingdom splits into two kingdoms, north and south. And the northern part of Israel and the southern part of Israel are fighting with each other all the time. And in the midst of that, God raises up these people to be truth tellers speaking to the other people on behalf of God. And they're called prophets. This is what a prophet is. It's a person who goes to God and God says, say this to the people. They go, cool. And they walk out and they stand up and they say, thus saith the Lord. And they speak to all the people. And so there are all these different prophets. Well, one of the prophets God raises up is a guy, Elijah, who we're going to look at here today. And just to catch you up specifically with a story, let me set you a cast of characters here. There's Elijah, who is a prophet. And he's a super good prophet. Uh, he goes to God. He hears clearly from the Lord. And he speaks to the people. And the people are like, cool, that's the word of the Lord. But there's also this couple uh, who happen to be king and queen, and it's Ahab, and it's Jezebel. And if any of you girls have ever called another girl Jezebel, right? Like, in a really derogatory way, where, like, that girl takes your boyfriend, and you're like, I can't believe you're going off with that Jezebel, right? Girls, you know what I'm talking about. Some of you in here are like, I'm a Christian. I would never call another woman Jezebel. And meanwhile, if I look in your text messages, it's like you use Jezebel every other word with an emoji that we're not going to talk about right now. You know who you are. I'm just saying, you get the idea. Jezebel is not a good lady, right? And her husband Ahab is kind of like this guy who every other day, he's not sure what he should do. He's like, I'm going to follow the Lord. And then Jezebel is like, you better not follow Yahweh. And she's like, he's like, I'm not going to follow Yahweh. So he just completely changes his mind. And then Basically, what happens in this whole process of relationship is Elijah comes to Ahab and says, listen, dude, you really need to follow Yahweh. And he's like, yes, I do. So he decides to follow Yahweh. And Jezebel's like, no, you won't. He goes, no, I won't. Right? Back and forth, back and forth. And in chapter 18 of 1 Kings, it's this really crazy moment. Uh, Elijah is trying to establish the sovereignty of Yahweh as the one true God in Israel. And so he goes up onto this mountain and there are all the prophets of Baal there. Baal was this, uh, he was like a rival deity. He doesn't really exist. Human beings kind of created the idea of Baal. And so there's all these prophets, like a whole bunch of prophets there. And then there's Elijah over here. And Elijah decides he wants like the NBA finals of prophets. He's like, listen, it's going to be Yahweh versus Baal, seven-game series. Here we go, right? And here's what he says. He's like, hey, we're going to set this up. Ahab, you're going to be in the audience. Prophets of Baal. Uh, we're going to both build altars. We're going to cut up some bulls because apparently that's what we do. And then we're going to ask the gods, your God versus my God, to rain down fire from heaven, consume the offering. And whoever's God uh, rains down fire from heaven and consumes the offering, that's the real God. Everyone agree to terms. Everyone's like, this sounds great. Like, Ahab, does this sound good? And he looks at Jezebel and says, does this sound good? And she's like, sure. And he says, sure. And now we're here. And so the prophets of Baal, they cut up the bull, they put it on the offering plate, they do the whole thing, they cry out to God, oh, Baal, answer us. Nothing happens. And so uh, Elijah starts, he's taunting them, basically. Like, if you ever want to look at, like, some hardcore smack talk, just read through 1 Kings 18, because Elijah is talking smack like crazy. He's like, hey, maybe yell louder. Perhaps Baal is asleep. And they're like, good idea. Oh, Baal, answer us, right? And he's like, oh, I don't know, man. And he's talking all the smack. Nothing happens. 
Meanwhile, he hedges his bet. He's like, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to pour water all over my offering, and I'm going to like dig the trench and all this stuff. It's going to be completely soaked. There's no way that any fire can consume this bull right here. And he simply stands and says, Yahweh, please rain down fire from heaven. And Yahweh goes, and torches the bull. And all the prophets of Baal are like, what? And Ahab is like, what? And Elijah is like, yes, son. Yeah, I told you, boy. Like, I got you. Yahweh's the real God, and he's talking all kinds of smack. And so he decides to up the ante, and he basically gets all these people together and goes, go slaughter every one of those prophets of Baal. And they're like, good idea. So they pick up like weapons, and they go murder all these prophets. And meanwhile, Elijah's standing there as the carnage is happening, and he's looking over at Ahab, and he's like, what? What now? What now? I told you. I told you. And Ahab has this moment where he goes, oh, my goodness, Yahweh is the real God, and he and Elijah decide they are going to go off this mountain and tell Jezebel what happened, and this is going to be a substantial journey. They're going to have to climb. Anybody ever climbed mountains before, or maybe you've done like the small trails, you know what I'm talking about? You have to wind your way up the mountain, and the gnats are getting at you and all that stuff. It's quite a harrowing journey, and so he's just like, he's like, listen, we're going to need to go tell her right now, but it's going to be a long journey, and here's what Elijah says to Ahab. He says, hey, Make sure you eat and rest and get some water because it's a long journey for where we're going. And I want you to be at full peak attention when you talk to your whore of a wife about what just happened. I'm telling you, this is exactly what he says to him. And Ahab's like, good idea. And so they walk off the mountain after he eats and they go to tell Jezebel. And can you imagine how Elijah is feeling right now? He's got like... He's got the swagger. He's got the holy swagger. Have you ever had holy swagger before? Do you know what I'm talking about? When you have like four quiet times in a row and it feels like you just like upped your points in the game of Jesus. It's like, yes, you get a special mushroom now. And you're just like walking around like you grew a couple inches or whatever. And you're just like, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Yahweh, son. Have you seen my Jesus tattoo? I got a cross both sides. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I'm, we got this, right? You're just like, riggedy rile, son. Ah, man, we took those prophets out. Like he's just so hyped about what happened. And you can imagine in his mind, you can see in the text, he's walking up to Jezebel thinking he's gonna show her conclusively, I just destroyed the prophets of Baal because Jesus or Yahweh is the real God. And now your husband's on board with this. We got a coalition of the willing on our side. We're ready to roll, son. Let's go. And he walks up to Jezebel all confident. He's been on a mountaintop, spiritual high, ready to roll. Walks in and is like, yeah, Jezebel, what do you have to say to that? And here's what she basically says to him. I'm going to pray to other gods that you are murdered, and I'm going to send everybody in my battalion after you, so you better run and tell that, run and tell that, run and tell that, homeboy, homeboy, home, home, homeboy, right? Like, Hardcore. Can you imagine having so much swagger walking up to Jezebel thinking this is my moment when Jesus is going to shine down on me and we are going to prove truth. And she says, I'm not listening to your truth at all. And Elijah is crushed. But I was just on this mountain and all these good things happened. And then we walk down, and I'm in this valley, and now my mortal enemy is telling me she doesn't want to listen to Jesus, and that she hates me and wants to murder me. What's going on here? He's in the valley, and he doesn't know what to do. And so we read in 1 Kings 19. Well, that was like a 15-minute introduction. Thank you for staying with me on that, right? I was trying to tell jokes. I made like a run and tell that reference, right? YouTube circa 2010, shout out. Trying to keep you guys engaged. I know it's hot. People are burning fires outside. We're good, okay? That was just, uh, I was praying earlier for some false gods in Orlando that God would come consume some bulls. Sorry about that. Those bull carcasses are still burning outside. That's what happened. I'm just kidding. That didn't really happen. There are wildfires around Orlando. Please don't believe me. I'm, ooh, this is, I'm in a tough proposition uh, situation because I'm trying to tell you truth, but I'm also kind of embellishing some things. Let's move along. Here we go. All right. Stay with me. Elijah's in a valley. Verse 1, chapter 19. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed the prophets with the sword. 
Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he arose and he ran for his life and he came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. It's one of the little neighborhoods. And he left his servant there. Verse 4, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He's in the wilderness, y'all. That's where you go when you're depressed. It's where you go when you're wandering. It's where you go when you're, you don't know what to do. And he came and he sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take, my li- or take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Um, at this point, Elijah, by all accounts, every Old Testament scholar I know would tell you, he is demonstrating the behavior of depression. He is depressed. He is having mental health issues. He is having emotional regulatory issues. He does not know what to do. More on that later. Verse 5, and he lay down and he slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, arise and eat. This is the same thing that Elijah told to Ahab. He's giving him the same advice. God's basically saying, arise and eat. Verse 6, and he looked and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones in a jar of water. It's like, you guys ever had the easy bake oven? This is what I'm imagining here. It just went ding. There was a light bulb in there that was heating it up, and he was like, easy bake, right? Right here for you. Um, Or maybe not. Maybe it was something else. Some of you are like, this guy is blasphemous. Like, God needs to consume him up. Okay. Uh, And he ate, and he drank, and he lay down again. In verse 7, and the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. If you have Bibles and you want to, go ahead and circle or highlight that. That is an important verse. Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he rose and he ate and he drank and he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights. And where did he go? To Horeb, the mount of God. He was in the valley. God said, eat and drink. And now he's going back up the mountain to his next spiritual high. Verse 9, there he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, am only left. And they, excuse me, they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in, uh, broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in a fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak, and he went and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord and the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword. And I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint uh, Haziel, I think that's how you say that person's name, to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. <clears throat> and Elisha, the son of uh, Shaphat, of uh, Abel Mahola, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. So just note what's happening here. Uh, Elijah knew that his role now wasn't going to be his role always, and God's telling him, enjoy your position, but prepare for transition. This is reinforcing that all over again. Just, just, that was just, was just for free. Just a little extra. Verse 17, and the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel shall Jehu put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha shall put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel and all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. In other words, what God says is, go ahead and prepare for transition, but don't you worry about that. I still got this. Now, what do we take from all of this? Elijah on that mountain, kills the prophets of Baal, rushes to tell uh, Jezebel. She says, I'm going to have you murdered. He goes into the wilderness. He sits under a tree. He's depressed. He wants to die. An angel comes to him and gives him advice. And on the basis of this advice of of the Lord, 
he now moves back up to the mountain to meet with God to get his next orders. So what's the advice? What is the grand, godly, amazing thing that changes his disposition, right? God came in and was like, listen, I want you to have a quiet time for 40 days in a row. I want you to fast for 90 days in a row. I want you to go to church 17 hours of every day over the next 14 years. Uh, Elijah, I want you to listen to worship music nonstop for the next 48 hours. Elijah, I want you to go to Walmart and I want you to share the gospel in an aggressive military fashion like you're a salesperson with everyone you meet who has brown hair and a tattoo. Elijah, I want you to go to this conference. Elijah, I want you to share your faith at work. Elijah, I... What's he do? What's he say? What's the thing that gets him from the valley to where he's got to be next? And this is our big idea. And I hope you notice this. Here's the big idea. Sometimes the most godly thing that you can do is a practical thing. Especially if you're in the valley. Sometimes the most godly advice you get is actually practical advice. What is it that God says to Elijah? Eat the food and drink the water. He sleeps and he eats. And God's, the, by way, the angel says, eat and drink because your journey is really long. You're going to need that energy where I'm about to take you. It's incredibly practical advice. God doesn't tell him to pray. He doesn't tell him to pour ashes on his head. He doesn't tell him to go to a religious service. He doesn't tell him to vote Republican or vote Democrat. He doesn't tell him to do any of these things. He says, hey, listen, you're really tired and hungry. You know what you need right now? Sleep and food and water. And you need it so much so I'm going to magically bake you a delicious strawberry upside down cake. And I'm going to give it to you right now. And I'm going to give you a nice mason jar full of water. And you're going to drink it. And you are going to be revived. Why? Because the next thing I have for you is going to take some, it's going to need some energy from you. And we're going to need you to walk in that way. Sometimes, oftentimes when we're in the valley, the most spiritual thing you can do is actually a very practical thing. Sometimes, if you're in the valley, the most godly and spiritual thing that you can do is take a nap, right? Sometimes the most godly and just spiritually mature thing you can do is just sit on the couch and read a book. Sometimes the most spiritual, amazing, in touch with Jesus thing you can do is get hydrated, Especially in the Orlando summer. My goodness, what is going on with the weather? When is her? I've never, listen, I'm from Texas, y'all. I've never thought I would pray for this, but this week I was talking to Natalie. We were praying. We're celebrating 15 years of marriage tomorrow. Thank you very much. Shout out. I got married when I was four. Um, so, no. Uh, and we were talking about this. We're like, man. And so we were praying, like, what should we pray for? And she was like, I'm just praying for a hurricane to come. I just. My yard is dying. I just, can we have like, not a category four, like a category three, if it could just pass over, give us some rain, that'd be great. We're, we're like looking on the National uh, Weather Service at the Hurricane Watch Center. Like, is that, is that tropical depression heading our way? Ooh, Tampa, dang. Okay, cool. Well, let's just, let's just hope tomorrow God brings this, you know, depression of rain all the way through here, right? Sometimes what you need is hydration, Okay, sometimes what you need is sleep. Sometimes what you need is rest. Sometimes what you need is play. Sometimes we're so stressed and so busy trying to do things for Jesus that what we really need is just to chill out and go play. Sometimes we just need to go hang out with our friends who are our deep community and just throw axes into a wall, right? I'm just saying sometimes the most spiritual thing that you need, especially in the valley, it's an incredibly practical thing. I was talking with a friend of mine uh, about two months ago. She started texting me. She just had a baby. Um, and I, listen, I'm not a scientific person. I'm not a science person. I'm not an MD. We have a doctor here. I can't speak to this. I'm just going to try to say this statement. I'm just going to say this statement. Look, I, I, I have experienced that some women tend to go through something called postpartum-like things after they have a baby. The chemicals are leaving their body, they're not sleeping, they're producing milk for the first time, and there's just like this thing that happens. And it appeared to me, as best I know how, and I'm not a medical expert, that that's what she was going through. So she's texting and she's calling me and we're talking and she is 
she is like so angry about something and I'm trying to, I'm like, how can I help you? And so like we're meeting and her and her husband and the baby and, and she's like, ah, oh, just this thing is terrible in my life and this thing is terrible in my life and I really need help. If you could answer this question here, I really think it'll help me just to relax and calm down. And, and, and I mean, I'm trying to get her to narrow in on what she wants and she's just gibberish all over. And I just, so it just dawned on me. I don't know why, maybe it's the Holy Spirit. I just said, hey, when's the last time you got more than four hours of sleep? And she was like, never. I've never had four hours of sleep ever in my life, ever, right? You guys have friends who have babies, and you know what it's like when they have babies, right? Or maybe you've been around them. Maybe you haven't been around them. Let me just give you uh, a preview of what happens. You never sleep again, ever, right? It's like you're just on caffeine all the time. You're never sleeping, it's caffeine and adrenaline. You just, you have this life that you're responsible for and you're just like, this is our Vietnam. Like, I just don't know what's going on, right? You're just like this all the time. And so she's telling me this and I said, okay, wait, wait, wait. Tell me about your day, what are you doing? She's like, well, uh, my mom volunteered to watch the baby. I thought what I would do is drop the baby off and my husband will go to work and I thought I'll go work out and then I'll go have a quiet time and then maybe I'll go listen to some Christian music and maybe that'll help me get right. And I just said to her, hey, why don't you drop your baby off and then go home and, like, put on the blackout curtains uh, and then just, like, go to sleep? And she was like, what? I was like, it sounds like you need sleep. And she was like, well, that's a good idea. I guess I could try that. I was like, listen, would you just do something for me? Try to go get four hours of sleep. And then after four hours, when your body wakes up, will you text me? And then we'll talk about this deeply theological concern you have. She was like, okay. So she went. She dropped the baby off. She went to sleep. And I just thought, okay, she'll text me, you know, in four hours. Twelve hours later, I get a phone call. And she's on the phone. And I'm like, hey, how are you doing? And she's like, I just got ten hours of sleep. I woke up and took a bubble bath. It was incredible. I just drove over to pick up, you know, baby from my mom's house. I feel so great. And I was like, cool. Well, do you want to talk about that deeply theological issue now? And she was like, what? And I said, you were asking me about this particular thing? Cricket's on the phone. I'm looking to make sure she's still on the phone. She's like, I have no idea what you're talking about, right? It's like she was the FBI on the, the, the stand in a legal defense situation. She's like, uh, that memory has been redacted from anything. I don't know what you're speaking of. I have no interest in having that conversation right now. She could not remember that thing that was so important that she needed to text me at 6 in the morning to talk about it right now. And I was like, well, okay, if you think about it, let me know later. A couple days went by, and I was like, hey, did that thing pop up or whatever? She was like, Doug, listen, I don't even know if I was conscious when I was talking to you because I was so tired. I just think I just needed some sleep. Sometimes when you're in the valley and it's really hard, the most spiritual thing you can do is a practical thing. Get some sleep, eat, be in community, have some fun, take a nap. Go for a walk, go for a jog, mow your lawn, clean your house. Practical things are sometimes the most important things we can do spiritually. And let me tell you why I think this is, and more importantly, let me tell you why I think we struggle with this. Because some of you are looking at me like, I don't know, Doug. I see that worked for Elijah, but is that really uh, maybe prescriptive for all of us? And I think it is, and I think we struggle with that for this reason. Because the lie of modernity, the lie of post-modernity, the thing that our culture that comes against us and the thing that the enemy does when he comes against us is he wants to convince us that our spiritual lives and our physical lives are completely separate. You know what I'm talking about? That the supernatural and the natural, they actually aren't together. That we are smart enough now because, because of science, because of academics, we can separate these things. Uh, you guys know what I'm talking about. We all have friends who will tell you what I do on Sunday and what I do the rest of the week. They don't matter. Like, I can be a Christian on Sunday, but the rest of the week, it doesn't really matter. And we have friends who go, hey, what I do in my personal life, what I do in my physical life has no bearing on my spiritual life. I can go live however I want to live, and then on Sunday morning, I can be whoever I want to be. Uh, I was nowhere more apparent of this dis dis uh, detachment from spiritual life and physical life than when I was in Uganda in 2011, which, by the way, is when the Mavericks beat the Miami Heat in the NBA Finals. I basically know every year by what happened in the NBA Finals, just so you guys know. 
I was very happy because I'm a big Mavs fan. Anyway, so I'm in Uganda, and if you guys know anything about Uganda, it was colonized by largely English-speaking people, primarily British-speaking people. And so the whole lexical vocabulary of Ugandan English comes from British parlance, or as to say, comes from British Christian parlance. They're Christian missionaries that primarily uh, educate some of the people in Uganda in English. So their whole uh, conceptual framework is this British Christianese. And so Natalie and I are driving on this bus uh, outside of Kampala going to where we're going. And we look over and there's this village. And we get out and we look and we notice it says, Jesus is Lord. And we're like, cool, is that a church? And we get closer and it says, Jesus is Lord, bar. Um, And we were like, oh, that sounds like a really fun place, right? Uh, And so like we go in and we talk to the people. We were like, hey, what's up, Jesus is Lord bar. Everyone's just like sitting there. They have the equivalent of a Ugandan country music that's playing on the background. And just a whole bunch of people are like, what's up, right? Uh, having their beers or whatever's going on there. And so we talked to some of the people because they were part of the, uh, the church we were working with. And we said, like, hey, tell me about the Jesus is Lord bar. Is this like an evangelism thing or whatever? And they're like, no. We come here to get drunk and hook up with people. And we're like, cool, 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 cool. And, and, and you're doing this in Jesus' name? And they're like, no, we're not doing this in Jesus' name. And I'm very confused at this point. And I was like, um, so can you, uh, this seems disconnected. Can you guys connect the dots? And this guy looks at us and says, listen, it's too hard to be uh, a Christian seven days a week. Uh, I can be a Christian on Sunday, but that's it. It's too hard to be at the rest of the week. And you guys, you guys all know people, in fact, many of you might even admit today, maybe you think that way, that what we've done is said, okay, Jesus is over here in my spiritual life, and then over here in my practical life, it's something else. And so when we find ourselves in the valley, what ends up happening is we go, oh, man, I'm in the spiritual valley. What do I do? I need to do more spiritual things to help get me out of this valley. But what does the Bible teach us? It teaches us that all of life is integrated. And so that sometimes when we find ourselves in the spiritual valley, what we need to help our spiritual lives is something incredibly practical and physical. Sometimes the most godly thing we can do is something very practical. And so what does this mean for us here today? I'm going to give you two action steps or two practical steps here. Let's say you find yourself in a valley or if you find yourself or a friend of yours who is in a valley, but maybe you want to start with yourself here. And so I'll just kind of frame it in terms of yourself. You find yourself in the valley. What, what are something I can do? And I want to give you two steps. Step one is do what Elijah did or what he should have done. Uh, ask yourself this question or answer this question. Uh, what advice would I give myself if I was talking to myself? When Elijah's meeting with Ahab, he's on top of the mountain, he can look at Ahab going, this journey that we're on, it's really long. So you need to eat, and you need to drink, and you need to sleep. And Ahab's like, yes, that's a good idea. Now, Elijah's in the valley and he's like, I don't know what to do. You guys know this, right? When you go through depression, if you have friends who are depressed or in depressive moments, part of the issue is you're so disoriented, you don't know what's right and what's wrong. And you're just like, I don't know what to do. And if Elijah could step outside of himself and talk to himself and be a prophet to himself, what advice would he give himself? He would say, Elijah, God's got something next for you. So eat and sleep and take a nap. What advice would you give yourself If you could talk to yourself, how would you minister to yourself? In any given situation you find yourself in, a good thing to get in the habit of doing is to step outside yourself and go, okay, if I was sitting across the table from me, here's what I would do. Here's how I would bless my own soul with some advice. What would you do? That's question number one. And question number two is this. Um, Is the advice that you give uh, gospel-centric? Or are you making sure that the advice you're giving is gospel-centric? The angel doesn't give Elijah that advice to eat and sleep because he's saying you got to do this in order to earn your way up the mountain. Notice he doesn't say that. Hey, do these things so that you can go up the mountain. The angel says this, and I'll read it again in verse 7. Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. Now think about that. He's assuming he's going on a journey back up the mountain. That's something God's already planned for him. God has already taken you up the mountain. So therefore, in light of that, here are some practical things you need to do to prepare for what God's going to do in your life. Remember what, what we teach about the gospel around here. 
that God loves us. If you're a believer in Jesus, this is what's true. God loves us all, and there's nothing so good we can do we can earn more of that. And there's nothing so terrible we can do that's going to take away from God's love. He already loves us unconditionally and lavishly. And God loves Elijah, and he has another mountaintop for him to get on. And so he sends an angel to tell him, I've got something for you, this journey that's for you. And therefore, in light of what I'm already going to do, which is unconditional from how you behave, I want to encourage you with some very practical things that are actually going to have effect in your spiritual life. When you give advice, when we give advice, let's make sure what we're not telling each other is stuff we think is going to somehow trigger God into giving us something back in a reciprocal fashion. Meaning, let's say you have a friend in the valley and they're really depressed. Here's some things I would not recommend that you say to them, right? They look at you and they're like, hey, listen, I'm depressed. And you're like, oh, man, I'm really sorry about that. I'm really sorry. Have you prayed a lot about this, right? You should consider praying more because I think if you pray more, That'll get you out of depression, okay? Anyone who's ever been in depression is like, I'm, I'm praying. I've been praying this whole time, right? Uh, there is nothing getting me out of here. Every time I pray, I just get more angry. So I don't know how that's going to kick me out of the situation, right? Uh, another thing to say is, you know what you just need to do, brother, sister, sister, oh, sister girl, lady sister. Listen, have you considered reading this book called the Bible, right? Because I think if you just read more Bible then God would honor your obedience and he would kick you out of this depression. No, there's nothing we can do, even spiritual things, that's gonna get us to a place where we earn more of God's favor. He already loves us. When we're depressed, guess what? God loves us. You can be a prophet doing ministry at a high level and you can be depressed. You can be a Christian and you can be depressed. No amount of our spiritual stuff is ever gonna kick us out of that. That is not the gospel. But sometimes what we need is to remember the truth of the gospel. Where I am right now and being depressed, I can worship Jesus. I've worshiped him when I'm thriving. I can worship him when I'm surviving and barely hanging on. And I know the faithfulness of God. He's got something next for me. That I can worship him as I start to revive again and move on to the next thing. And so I'm going to eat and I'm going to sleep and I'm going to take care of myself. And God, one day, because that's the way he operates, he's going to show me what's next and he's going to move me out of this depression. He's going to move me out of this valley. But none of his moving me out of this valley is dependent or contingent upon what I'm doing in that valley. That's not the way God operates. That would be a very, very mean God. And as we've sung about before countless times since 2016, he is a good, good father. And he loves us unconditionally apart from anything we do. So two things we can do is number one, we can give ourselves the advice that we would give anybody else. And number two, We can make sure that our advice is gospel-centered. I want to take you guys back to 2016. I remember I'm sitting there in my house in Frisco, Texas, and um, I knew God had something next for me. He hadn't articulated or finalized it, but I knew First Orlando was coming and the table was coming. I knew he had kind of, he was working some things for that, but everything wasn't final. I hadn't signed anything. Uh, And I had about this month period in between jobs where I was not really doing anything. I had nowhere to go at work. Um, I really had nothing to do. So uh, I'm just sitting at home. The the year before, you guys know, I had had really crazy knee surgery. And I was still recovering from that. So I would still be doing, you know, uh, physical therapy stuff and all that stuff. And I just remember I was praying one day. I was like, God, I'm just in this real depressed kind of I don't know what to do thing. I'm praying. I'm trying to understand, God, what do you want from me? Is something coming? And I had my own kind of angel of the Lord moment where God just kind of said to me, hey, Doug, is there anything in your life that I've told you to do up to this point that you haven't done because you've been too busy? And I was like, oh, yeah. I have like, I think I have a list on my phone here, Jesus. Like I even have due dates that are way past due. Uh, and I, I'm kind of ashamed to go back to them because I promised you I would do them, and I haven't done them. And uh, I just like to pretend that they don't exist, right? And God just kind of said to me, well, open it back up. <laughs> and so I was, I'm thinking it through. I'm like, well, you know, all I have right now is time. 
And so I guess I could just work on all the things you told me to do that I haven't had time to do because I was too busy in ministry. I guess I, you've given me this wonderful gift of time. I guess I'll go do that. And so I, I listed some of the things uh, here that I did, and some of them I'm really embarrassed about. So I'm about to be embarrassed in front of you. So here we go. Number one, I got a lot more sleep. I think I got like nine or ten hours of sleep a night as I was going through that journey. Um, and I just told my wife, hey, I'm going to go to bed. Now, normally I go to bed at 10 and I get up at 6. Okay, that's my normal thing. I was like, I'm going to go to bed at 9 and get up at 7, right? I'm going to go to bed at 9 and get up, some, you know, something like that. And I, was, I just got plenty of sleep and I felt rested and I felt refreshed. Uh, number two, uh, I got into my journals uh, and I was looking through all these things. And one of the first things I wrote was um, in 2000, in the year 2000, in the year 2000, um, I was hanging out with my buddy Micah, and we were in a band. You know how when you're in a band, you start, like, wearing really cool clothing? We started going to Goodwill, and we found, like, this really quirky clothing. And he had this crushed velour jacket that was, like, tan with a maroon stripe through it. And it was collarless, and it was a zip-up, and it was just super dope. And um, I remember in 2000, he wore it one time when we were playing a show. And afterwards, he set it down, and I was like... Spondu, <laughs> right? I was like, that's mine, okay? I like, I'm, and I swiped it, knowing that Mayako was kind of forgetful, and um, I just stole it from him, right? And I went to my closet, and there it was in all of its glory. Now, it's 2016. I can't even fit it in anymore, but I've kept it because I'm a hoarder, and um, I'm also kind of ashamed that my good friend Micah, I stole his jacket from him, and we were in a band together, and I treated him really crappy over that. And so I'm looking at it going, oh, man, i got to own up to this. So I get on Facebook, and my buddy Mike now is a, a pharmacist. And it's not that he really sells drugs. He really is a pharmacist. Um, and I message him on Facebook, and I'm like, hey, man, it's me. Hope you're doing well. Yeah, remember that jacket that... You wore in our band in the year 2000, and it was kind of tan with the maroon line going through that. And I was like, okay, I'll send it off. Lord, if he wants that jacket back, he'll respond. It was like one of those moments. Lord, if you are real, consume this burnt offering. And um, like almost immediately, he messaged me back. He was like, yes, I love that jacket. Where did it go? And I was like, dang it. Um, I was like, well, funny you should ask. It's in my closet. And I was wondering if I could have your address because I want to mail it back to you. And he sent me his address, and he was like, I'm never talking to you again. <laughs> so I was like, I get that, man. I totally get it. So I went to FedEx, and I folded it up, and I put it in the box, and I put it in the mail. And I wrote a note in there like, please let me know that you get this because this is kind of a spiritual quest I'm on trying to get this back to you. And so I got the Facebook message like a week later. It's like, hey, I got the jacket. looks good. Thanks, man. And I was like, cool. I was like, okay, man. Whew, Jesus, I felt better afterwards. I was like, oh, my conscience is clean. I'm kind of making amends here. That was very practical. I'm feeling good. And so I open my journal, and I'm praying and get, still getting sleep and still trying to eat healthy. And um, the next thing on my list was, how many pirated CDs do you have? Let's just say that freshman year Doug in college was very much amazed by this thing called Napster. Um, and... Let's just say that I had, I don't know, somewhere in the neighborhood of 300 pirated CDs that I had burned music onto, uh, and probably another, I don't know, 10,000 songs somewhere on a server that I'd been saving because I did the hard work of illegally downloading them, and I couldn't get rid of them. And um, so I was just like, Jesus, what do I do about this? Like, you know, should I just start buying the music from iTunes and then I can keep this? Like, what's the situation? And God was just like, get rid of it all. And so I just went to my little, I had a little binder that had CDs in it because I'm an old person. Are you guys getting this, how old I am? Y'all are looking at me like, ooh. You put ones and zeros on a little disc and put it into a thing like it's a toaster? Ah! Right? Um, so I took all of those CDs and I put them in the trash one by one. I'd be like, oh. I made like these romance mixes for my wife when we were in college. 
Uh, and I was like, mm, Michael Bublé, here we go. All right, there I am. Right? Like I had a whole bunch of Christian music, and I'm like, I'm sorry, brothers and sisters in Christ. I stole money from you. And I got rid of all of them, and I deleted all of the music off of all of my external hard drives that I had. And I only got down to things that I'd legally purchased and had copyright for. And when I was done with it, I cried because I remember all the hard work of going, click, that's awesome. Click, that's awesome. Click, that's awesome. And, you know, I just had a moment there with all that illegal pirating that I'd been doing over the years. And it was cathartic, and I got rid of it. And by the end of it, I was like, man, I feel like I am putting myself in a position to say, Jesus, whatever you want me, you have given me this wonderful time to clear the deck and get ready for whatever you have next for me. And I'm telling you, the minute I sent the thing off to Micah and the minute I got rid of all of my pirated music... And the minute I got sleep and felt in my own right mind, God sent me a job offer to come here and be at First Orlando. And we got the moving truck and we loaded the stuff up and we got in it. And we got here and we sold our house. And we sold our house for a lot of money. And then we took that money and we paid off the lot of student loan debt that we had and got rid of it. And on my way driving here, I was doing something very bad. I'm sorry, Oprah, but I was like doing the thing where I use the knee to hold the steering wheel driving through Louisiana so I could text my bank number to my student loan company and be like, I'm done with that debt, son. You're out of my life. Uh, I paid off all of our student loan debt driving with one knee all the way here. And then I had to repent of that once I got to Mississippi. Um, But I'm telling you, Jesus took that period of me just doing incredibly practical things. And he did something tremendous in my spiritual character. And it's the same thing he did for Elijah. And if you're here today and you're in a valley. Or if you are about to go into a valley. Or if you find yourself in a valley in the future, the most spiritual thing that you can do might be a practical thing. 